Good morning, Bethesda. Doesn't Josh always do such a great job with our video announcements? Absolutely. I know that we've already prayed several times, but I want to pray one more time as we get into this message because I believe that the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has a word for us today. I sense in my spirit that the church at large is going through a season of somewhat difficult moments, times where we feel like maybe we're crying out to God and he's not hearing us, times where we've gone through extended seasons of difficulty and there doesn't seem to be any way out in this moment, times where we're just growing weary with well-doing. And I have a word for you this morning and I believe that God's going to encourage your heart. So Lord Jesus, we come to you. You are a great God and your name is above every other name. And this morning we speak the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. And Lord Jesus, we cry out to you and we are confident that you hear us and that your ear is leaned toward us. We are asking you, my Father, for every heart that is weak, for every heart that is experiencing discouragement, for every heart that's broken, confused, or in a season of wondering. We are asking you this morning, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you encourage your people this morning? Father, would you do such a work in our lives that we are reminded that you never leave us and that you never forsake us, that we are never alone. But most of all, my Father, we ask that the name of Jesus be exalted in everything we say and everything that we do for your honor and for your glory. For it is in his great name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Starting March 9th, which is just a week and a day away, the Jewish um, people will begin to experience a festival that they call Purim. Now, Purim is not a biblical holiday that you're going to find in the Bible like Passover or Sukkot. Purim, though, is a very famous, well-known, embraced Jewish holiday. And this holiday celebrates the deliverance of the people of God from the wicked um, Haman and his family in the book of Esther. And so during this holiday, Jews will, during Purim, they'll exchange gifts with each other, and it's a time of great celebration. It's a great time of fun, and they remember that they serve a God who is able to deliver his people from the most difficult of circumstances and situations. With that in mind, when I knew that I was going to be speaking this morning, that idea just began to, I guess, stir in my heart because sometimes we as evangelical Christians, we are not always aware of what's going on in the Jewish calendar and its importance or its significance for our life. And I just wanted to share with you this morning some ideas from the book of Esther. But before I go there, I need to talk with you about a conversation that I had with a rabbi about a decade ago. I was at a conference in... Um, Virginia, and it was an academic conference. It was a Pentecostal academic conference. And during this conference, they had, the leaders of this conference had flown in some rabbis from Israel. Now these rabbis, they were not Messianic, they were Orthodox Jews, but they had come in because there's an alliance between Pentecostals and, and Israel, and they wanted to just fortify their commitment. The Pentecostals wanted to fortify their commitment to Israel and standing with Israel. And so during this conference, one of the speakers was um, especially non-engaging, and I'm a little bit ADD. 
And I was, you know, I had doodled up my entire page of notes and, you know, I had pictures and all kinds of great geometric designs on my page. And finally, there was no room left. And I was getting, you, some of you know what I'm talking about. And I was getting squirmy, you know, the feeling. And I heard, what I heard coming from the podium was blah, 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 blah. And I was, I was trying to think, I was trying to concentrate, and this is in no way an impingement upon the speaker. This is an indictment against my inability sometimes to focus and pay attention when I ought to. So I decided that it would be in the benefit of everyone sitting at my table, and there were two of the rabbis that were sitting at my table, so I decided that before I embarrassed myself that I would get up and just go sit outside for a moment. And so I got up and I sat out in a foyer area and one of the rabbis came and sat down right across from me. And so we began to talk to each other and he found out that I taught Hebrew Bible and Hebrew and so he began to engage me in conversation and that conversation was endlessly fascinating. I wish I'd had paper to take notes on some of the things that he shared with me because it seemed that every word that came out of his mouth was profound wisdom. And then finally, he asked me a question, and I didn't need paper for this one. This question was simply this, have you ever read the book of Esther? Now, no one had ever asked me that question before, and I had to be honest with him and I said, sir, I read the book of Esther enough to pass the test. So that when the test was given to me in an Old Testament class or in whatever class I was taking, I would know enough to be able to pass the test. I can tell you the dates. I can give you information about the historical context. But I have to admit, I have never really studied the book of Esther. And this precious rabbi leaned in closer to me and he said, lady, I'd like to challenge you to study the book of Esther because we rabbis believe that God has hidden himself in the book of Esther and it's the wise man, it's the wise woman who will read the book of Esther and find the places where God has hidden himself. He continued the conversation by, saying, by asking me, what does the name Esther mean? And I said, well, Esther in Persian means star. Hadassah, her name in Hebrew, means myrtle. And he said, doesn't Esther have a meaning in Hebrew as well? And I thought, and I said, yes, sir, it does. And he said, and what is that meaning? And I said, Esther in Hebrew means hidden. And he said, that's exactly right. God has hidden himself in the book of Esther. Because you see, in the book of Esther, the name of God's not mentioned. Covenant's not mentioned. Jerusalem's not mentioned. The temple's not mentioned. Esther almost did not make it into the canon of Scripture because of these things. And I believe it was by a divine move of the Holy Spirit that Esther made it into our canon of Scripture. And so this morning, I'd like to talk with you about the hidden God of Esther. And I would like to encourage you to look at your own life and see how God is hiding himself in the circumstances and the situations of your own life. Now, with the idea of hidden, I know that many of you share my love for science fiction. Star Trek, Star Wars, I know you're in the room. Thank you, thank you, I know you're in the room. Recently, with both of these franchises, both Star Trek and Star Wars, both of them have released series for the first time. Star Wars has released the series Mandalorian, and Star Trek has released the series Picard. And with both of these series, they have done a thing called Easter eggs. Now, 
in our understanding, Easter eggs are those colored eggs that's usually filled with lots of yummy good chocolate and other prizes and treats. But in the realm of media and movies, an Easter egg is a hidden or an embellished gem inside of that particular series. And so you'll, some people will watch the series and they could care less about the hidden or embellished caveats that are in that movie or in that series. But for those who are true Star Wars and Star Trek fans, you'll watch that series over and over and over again looking for every possible Easter egg you can find, every reference to another program or another show, every reference that might give you a clue as to what is coming. The book of Esther is filled with such things. To date, I have found over 25 places where God has hidden himself in the book of Esther. I thought about standing up here this morning and telling you that I'm going to share all 25 with you. But I knew that um, at some point we would all want to go get lunch. So I'm going to ask you, if you'll bear with me for just a few moments, let's look at two, maybe even three of the places where God has hidden himself in the book of Esther. But even before we look at that, I want to talk with you about the concept of a hidden God. You see, God throughout Scripture, various times and places, chooses to hide himself. Because divine presence is so important, we find in Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 and 2, and then also in, in verses 12 through 17, Moses is trying to take the people of God through the wilderness. But the people of God are the people of God, mummering and complaining and doing the things that ancient Israel did during the wilderness wandering. And so they so offended God at one point in Exodus chapter 33 that God said, I can't go with this people. I'm going to send an angel, and an angel is going to lead you through the wilderness. But Moses came back to God and said to him, if you don't move, we're not moving. Thank you very much for the idea of an angel, but that's not the presence that we are looking for. We are looking for divine presence. Church, I would that we be so hungry and so desirous of the presence of God that we would stop accepting substitutes. That we would be so moved and so thirsty and so longing for God himself to begin to move us personally, move us as a people, that we would no longer accept substitutes nor alternates. Because see, Israel, because they refused to accept a substitute or an alternate, they became known as the people of presence. I wish the church were known as the people of divine presence. I wish I was known as a woman of divine presence because I believe that that's the kind of thing that God is wanting to stir in our hearts and in our lives in this area. In Psalm 51, verse 11, this is David's cry of repentance after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's crying out to God and he said, forgive me, O God, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned. And he goes on and he says, you can take whatever you want, just do not take your spirit from me. Is that the way we pray? God, whatever you need to take, take my houses, take my lands, change my dreams, change my plans for whatever it takes to be closer to you. That's Lord, that, Lord, is what I'll be willing to do. That's an old song, and maybe some of you remember it. But are we that hungry and are we that passionate about God's presence that we would cry out with David, whatever you need to do, do it, Lord. Just don't take your presence from me. 
Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And maybe one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture, Judges chapter 16, verse 20. Samson, a man who had known and walked in the power and the presence and the strength of God, allowed it a little bit here and a little bit there to be whittled away from him until chapter 16, verse 20. And it says, and Samuel got up and he did not know that God had departed from him. To be a people of God's presence is to be a people acutely aware of his moving and of his whispers and of his nuances. A people desirous of him above all things and above all else. God is a God of presence. All the way from the book of Genesis when he starts off in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is a God who is present. But there are moments, there are seasons in our life. It doesn't mean that God's gone anywhere, but there are moments and there are seasons where it feels like God has left us and we are alone. Because God is omnipresent, that means he is all places at all times. There is no way that God can be removed because he's omnipresent. So he hides himself for just a moment. I have found three reasons given in Scripture for why God would hide. The first reason is human sinfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 18 says, And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Deuteronomy 32, verse 20 echoes this, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Jeremiah 33, verse 5, I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. And 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 2, The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, if you hide yourself from him, then he will hide himself from you. Human sinfulness, I think, is probably one of the most prominent causes of that sense of divine hiddenness. When we sin, our sin by its very nature separates us from a holy God. When we sin, our own heart condemns us according to the book of Romans and it separates us from a holy God. But here's the good news. If it's sin that's separating you, then it's repentance that will put you back into a right place. If you are sensing a removal or a separation or the hiddenness of God in your life, the first thing, the first go-to for any and all of us is to repent. Repent is not a bad word. Repent is something that we need to do often. It's like taking a bath. Sometimes we need to take a bath whether we want to or not. Sometimes we need to step into the shower whether we feel like we're dirty or not. We need to repent whether we think there's anything going on or not. Sometimes we just need to lay ourselves before the Lord and say, Jesus, here I am. I am broken, I am weak, and I am flawed. If there's any area of my life that you want to deal with me about, Lord, speak your servants listening. Church, we have lost our sensitivity to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. 
Sometimes God has to hit us over the head with a two by four before we realize that there's areas in our life that he wants to take control over. Repentance is a good place to regain your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Humble yourself. Repent. Humble yourself. There is nothing wrong with humbling yourself because God responds to the humble of heart. He is committed to bring down the proud, the haughty, and the lofty, but he is committed to give grace to the humble. And it is never wrong, it is never a wrong choice for you to humble yourself beneath the hand of a mighty God. The third thing that you can do if you sense that God is somewhat hidden from you or you're in a moment of hiddenness, submit yourself to the authorities that God has placed over you. I know that in our culture, submit has become a dirty, awful word. But can I tell you that there is no other word in Scripture that is any more beautiful to me than submit. Because you see, when I submit to the authorities that God's placed over me, I am submitting myself to protection. I am submitting myself to an authority greater than my own. I'm submitting myself first and foremost to God himself and then to the authorities that he places over me. It is because I am under submission that I have any authority at all. Because you see, your level of authority will be directly dependent on your level of submission. That man or that woman that refuses to submit to the authorities that God has placed over them, any authority that you have is coming from a place other than the Lord. And it's not an authority that you want to involve yourself in. Now I know that that deserves an entire sermon all by itself. But if you find yourself in a moment where it seems that God is hiding from you, repent. Humble yourself and submit yourselves to the authority that God has placed over you. Second reason that God might hide himself. God hides to test the hearts of his people. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, God left him, referring to Hezekiah, God left him in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. There are times when God will allow us to not sense his presence to see what's in our heart. See, we all can follow God when we've got goosebumps and warm fuzzies and we are feeling the churning and we are feeling the motion and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can all follow God when everything's going our way and everything is wonderful and power and light and wonder. But what happens when all of those things stop and all we have left is faith. Will we walk with God with the same level of energy, boldness, and courage when we ain't a-feeling it? As we did when we were. Sometimes God will hide because he wants us, he already knows what's in my heart, he wants us to see what's really in our hearts. Sometimes this hiddenness of God may look like we're having to wait. I can do some things well, but I do not wait well at all. Waiting is not my strong suit. Put me in a doctor's office and have that appointment delayed. I'll give you five minutes. Ten minutes is pushing it. And here comes the ADD sitting in. I'm playing air drums in the waiting room. 
I've, done, I've made all the phone calls. I've played all the video games. I've done everything. I've read all the magazines. And then the real contents of my heart starts coming out. Anger. Impatience. All kinds of things that I would rather pretend did not exist. There are things that will come out of us when God hides from us. Not because he wants to make us uncomfortable, even though he doesn't mind making me uncomfortable. He does it all the time. But there are times when God will hide from us to show us what's really in our hearts. God left him, Hezekiah, to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, God spoke to Abraham and said, Take up your son, your only son Isaac, and take him to the place that I'll show you. And there, give him to me as a sacrifice. And Abraham took a three-day journey, and God was completely silent and completely hidden from him. And the only thing that allowed Abraham to take that three-day journey was his faith in God and his commitment to God. Because God wasn't having angels sing the hallelujah chorus over him with every step that he took. Sometimes God will give us a very tall command. He'll give us a very tall order. And then he will hide from us to see if we'll be obedient to him even when we're not feeling it, even when we're not sensing his presence. Think about Joseph. God gave him dreams. Joseph knew that he was called and set aside by God. And when he tried to share this great news with his brothers, they stuck him in a pit and sold him to be a slave. In the house of Potiphar, he did everything that he was supposed to do. And because of the favor and the hand of the Lord that was upon his life, he rose to a place of high position in Potiphar's home until Potiphar's wife made a false accusation against him and now Joseph is in prison. And that favor that brought him to a high position in Potiphar's house was still upon him in a prison. Can I say to you, when the favor and the hand of God is upon you, it does not matter if you are in a pit. It does not matter if you are in Potiphar's house. It does not matter if you are in prison or if you are in the palace of Pharaoh. God's favor will work out the same in your life. Because the favor of God is not dependent on circumstances and situations. The favor of God, the hand of God on your life has nothing to do with what's out there and has everything to do with what's in you. For years, Joseph sat in prison, interpreted dreams for two guys. To the baker, he said, your dream means that within three days you'll lose your head. And to the wine taster, he said, within three days, your position will be restored and you will once again be back in the presence of Pharaoh, serving him his wine. Remember me when you get there. You can almost hear the desperation in Joseph's voice. Remember me when you get there. Obviously, God has forsaken him. Obviously, God has hidden himself from him. Joseph feels alone and isolated. Therefore, he must now take things into his own hands and see if he can coerce the wine taster to mention his name before Pharaoh. And maybe Joseph can do for himself what God, up until this point, has not done for him. I know that feeling. How many times have we, as the people of God, decided, I've waited on God long enough. 
I'm going to take this situation into my own hands. I'm going to package myself. I'm going to promote myself. I'm going to put myself out there. Well, what we need to do, instead of putting ourselves out there, we need to once again put ourselves in his hands and trust him to do what only he can do. God hides himself because of human sinfulness. God hides himself to test the hearts of humanity. The third reason, God hides himself for times and seasons of our life for reasons known only to him. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. There are times when God hides himself so that we'll look for him. There was a famous rabbi by the name of Abraham Heschel. On, on the Sabbaths, Abraham Heschel would seclude himself in his study and there spend time in study and prayer. But outside his office, he could hear his children playing with their friends, with their relatives, and he knew that they were playing a game of hide-and-seek. And he looked out his window and he saw his youngest daughter, very distraught, with tears streaming down her, his face, her face. He called her in, wrapped, him, wrapped his arms around her, and said, darling, why are you so distraught? What has upset you? And she said, Papa, the older children were playing hide-and-go-seek, and I asked if they could play, and they said, sure, and they told me to go hide. And I heard them counting. I found a good place to hide. And I knew that at some point they were going to have to say that they give up and I was going to show them that I could hide just as good as anybody. But I waited. And I waited. And no one came looking for me. And therein lies the tears. In that moment, Abraham Heschel said that God began to stir in his heart and spoke to him and said, Son, so have I hidden myself. And so is my heart broken because my people have not sought me either. There are times when God hides himself because he wants us to seek him. And sometimes in the seeking, it takes us to a higher place of maturity. Sometimes in the seeking, it allows the hidden contents of our heart to be revealed. Sometimes in the seeking, we begin to long for him more than we long for our sin. And yet if he's not immediate, if we can't find him quickly, with little effort and in our comfort zone, we give up and stop looking for him altogether. We stop praying. We stop going to church. I've been to church. I went to church twice and there wasn't anything there for me. Seriously? I prayed once. I read that Bible once. Sometimes, we're not seeking because of what the seeking's going to give to us. Sometimes we are seeking in what the seeking is going to bring out of us and reveal back to us. So where is God hidden in the book of Esther? I know, you thought I'd never get to it. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian captivity took place. The Babylonians took Jerusalem, the people of Judah, as captives. But in 539 B.C., another military agency and people defeated the Babylonians. They were the Persians. And when the Persians took over Babylon, they took over all the captive people. 
So the book of Esther takes place not under Babylonian rule, but under Persian rule. Can I tell you, Persian rule, while it seemed accepting and tolerant of all peoples, it was only accepting and tolerant as a one-way street. You had to tolerate them because they weren't going to tolerate you. Now, if this is not sending off red alerts and dinging truth bells all in your being, I don't know what will. Esther was a contemporary with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. As I've already mentioned, the name of God, any reference to covenant, the temple, or Jerusalem is not found in this book. And the book of Esther is not mentioned in the New Testament. But I want you to know, if you read the book of Esther with an open heart and a spirit sensitive to the Lord, he will reveal himself to you through the contents of this book. In, in Esther chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 and verse 10. You know the context. It's basically been a beauty pageant. And Esther's been one of the finalists. And she's been taken into the king's harem. And verse 4, Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had, exi had exiled. Now he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful in form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now verse 10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. The people of God are captive in Babylon, now Persian rule. They're not advertising openly or nor confessing their identity nor their faith. They are not initially being persecuted, but there is a sense that at any moment the tide could turn. They're remaining silent, intimidated by the culture around them. Get this picture. It's like a pot of water that's beginning to boil but has not quite yet boiled over. But there's the sense in this book that at any moment if the people of God were to come out and fully identify themselves and their faith, then that pot would begin to boil over. I feel like I am reading about my own culture at that point. They're remaining hidden, not because of direct persecution, but for fear of stirring things up. This is so close to describing our present cultural context as Christians. It no longer feels safe for me as a conservative evangelical Christian to openly profess and to declare my faith and convictions without misunderstandings, threats, and bullying. God is hidden in this moment, allowing us to be moved, if you would allow me to use the expression, to the back of the bus until we allow the lion of the tribe of Judah to roar within us once again. You know the story of Rosa Parks. I've shared it from this very pulpit on several occasions. She was always, as a woman of color, asked to move to the back of the bus, even though she had paid the same price as the people who were sitting up front. And if they ran out of seats, then she was asked to stand 
so that someone else could take her seat. But on one such day, Rosa sat down, and in her biography she said, and God spoke to me, not today, Rosa. Don't give up your seat today. Church, there's coming a time. We are quickly approaching a moment when the Spirit of God is going to rise up within us and we're going to say, not today. That's enough. This is not anything to do with politics. This is about our faith. This is about our convictions. This is about our freedom to stand up and say, I serve a risen, resurrected Savior, and His Word is the standard for my life. Not your liberal interpretation, not your misinterpretation, but this Word is the standard for my life, and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. God's hidden in this moment, creating a context for the people of God to become so uncomfortable with the intimidation, so uncomfortable with the bullying, that finally they realize they don't have anything to lose and they're willing to step up and go, not today. Not today. God was hidden in the prelude. God was hidden in the process. This is verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. The young lady would go to into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Let's look at the process. You could like run right through this and read over it a thousand times and never see it. Esther was taken and placed under the care of a eunuch named Haggai. And Esther won his favor. That word for favor is hesek, which also means the favor of the Lord upon his people. We know, as I've already mentioned, that Joseph had favor in the house of Potiphar, then in prison, and then in Pharaoh. He asked one thing of the prisoners to show him favor and remember him. And in God's timing, he did receive the favor of Pharaoh, not because of the testimony of someone else. He received favor because of God. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says, We do not receive favor nor promotion from men, nor from armies, nor from political agendas. We receive favor from the Lord. Our favor comes from the Lord. Our promotion comes from the Lord. Cosmetics were given to Esther. These cosmetics were equivalent to a, a grainy salt or salt, uh, salt or sugar scrub. Now, I know most of us ladies, we are familiar with this. It's an exfoliant, meaning that you grind it into your skin and you exfoliate all the dead skin cells. It removes the dead cells and makes the skin soft and receptive to moisture. This is an, an abrasive process and it's not comfortable at all. Then food was given to her for nourishment and strength, but also to promote outward beauty. This would be food that did not have a great deal of seasonings. It would be mostly vegetables and fruits, grains and nuts. Then she was given assistance to apply this scrub and the cosmetics to be certain that the food was eaten. 
Do you have divinely appointed people in your life that take exfoliants and rub it into you? Do you have people in your life who are abrasive? People in your life who grate against you? Could it be that God has placed these people in your life because you need them? I'm not just talking about the person that you're married to. We need people around us that do not always agree with us. We need people around us that can sometimes be abrupt and can scratch against us. Let me give you some illustrations of some people in Scripture who graded against another person. You remember the story of Hannah? Well, Hannah had a sister wife named Penina, and they were both married to Elkanah. Now, I'm sure that Elkanah would say that they both were abrasive and not always the best thing to deal with. But Penina would constantly taunt Hannah because she didn't have a baby. It would almost be like she would hold up one of her babies and go, look what I have, and you don't have one of these. I bet you wish that you had one of these. And she vexed Hannah daily to the point that Hannah began to cry out to the Lord. Have you ever noticed that people that vex us, people that are abrasive, people that scratch and grate up against us, that oftentimes God uses them to provoke us to seek him in a new sort of way. To lose sight of the person and to lift our eyes up and go, God, that person can't give me what I'm looking for, but you can. So I'm seeking you. That person has been used to show me that there are deficiencies in my life, that there are things in my life that need to be dealt with, but I know, God, that that comes from you. My help comes from the Lord. I don't need her help. I need his help. Hannah was one such person. She had 12 months of treatment. Six months she would spend in myrrh, in oil form. Anyone who's ever dealt with oils, you know that myrrh is bitter to the taste and, not, and when it's alone, not pleasant to the smell. Myrrh pulls out toxins and poisons from the body. It's like something that just pulls all the things out of you that doesn't belong there. Six months, she's in a bitter bath. I know that there are some of you in this house this morning, you are in a bitter bath. You're in a place or a context where it seems like nothing's going right. Everyone's against you. God has hidden himself from you, and you are alone, and you are having a bitter moment. You're having a moment where answers and help from heaven seem far off. But I want you to know, bitter and abrasive moments do not make or bring anything out of us that we didn't have going in. I can never say, I am like this because he. Or I am like this because she. No, those people did not put anything in me. God used them to stir up what was already there and bring it to my sight. I know this is a hard word, but church, this is the truth. 
Sometimes we are so interested in the feel goods that we forget that the anointing and the power and the authority of God rests upon those who have been dealt with by God, have been through the bitter baths and the bitter moments of life. Those bitter moments, those abrasive moments, expose us what we have always been. Our reactions to the events of life determine what we become. But don't blame your circumstances or your situations for your mean, bitter behavior. If you are mean and you are bitter, it's not because of what someone else did to you. It's because of what was already in you and the choices and decisions that you made to not submit yourself to the Lord and let him deal with those things. God is a healer of bitter waters. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. Israel's been walking through the desert, and now she's crying out for water. It's more than just a faith cry. It's like, Moses, if you don't get us water, we're going to stone you. And Moses cried out to the Lord, and they saw a lake of water. But when they tasted the water, that which should have supplied refreshment, that which should have supplied life and nourishment for them, They found that it was bitter. And Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord told him to take a stick and to throw a stick in the water, and the waters would become sweet. And Moses obeyed the Lord, and the waters became sweet, and it was there that God was first called Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God who heals. God wants to heal your bitter waters. I think it's interesting that he threw a piece of wood Because you see, it's the wood of an old rugged cross that's been applied to my life that has taken the bitter moments and has made them useful and sweet. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that takes the bitter baths that I might find myself in from time to time and allows me to receive healing from bitter moments. That allows me to be everything that he's destined me to be. That allows you to be destined and healed from all the things around you. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 16 through 27, the Hebrew children that were thrown into the fire, they could become bitter. They could have said, God's not going to rescue us. God allowed us to be in this situation. And now, because of our faith, we're about to be thrown into a furnace. And they've heated it up multiple times hotter than usual. But instead, what was in them was faith. And they said, we may die. We may not make it out of the furnace, but know this, we will not bow our knees to anyone but to the Lord. And they got thrown into the furnace, and the only thing that came off was their ropes. Church, think about that. The furnace, the bitter waters that you are in right now can become the very thing that God uses to set you free from the things that bind you and hold you back if you will just look to him remember the three things when you find that God is hiding himself from you repent humble yourself before the Lord and submit yourself to the authorities that he's placed over you there are many people that have found themselves in bitter moments Hannah as I've already shared with you, David, multiple times David found himself in difficult 
bitter moments. There was the blind man who did not allow his context to keep him from crying out to Jesus. And when people tried to shut him up and shut him down, he cried all the more loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There was the woman with the alabaster jar of ill repute who pushed her way through people who would not have wanted her there, but she knew that if she could get to Jesus, that he would take the bitter things of her life and make them sweet. And what about the woman with the issue of blood, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I know I will be healed. The world can do the things that the world does, but church, it's time for us to look to the Lord. He's hidden in the prelude. He's hidden in the process. He is all around us, and he is in us if we know him as Lord and Savior. My question is, are you looking for him? Or are you looking for an easy way out? It's the glory of God to hide a thing, even himself. But it's the glory of us to look for him. How long are we going to continue in silence, hoping that we can keep the peace before we allow God to stand up inside of us and roar, not today? How long... Will we try to ignore and find a way out of an uncomfortable process? But you see, without going through the process of the bitter baths, we will not be equipped and prepared before a world that really needs Jesus. So my question to you this morning comes down to this, and thank you so much for your attention. You guys have been really amazing today. My question to you this morning is how many of you would say, you know what, it's time for me to seek the Lord some of you are in a bitter bath. Some of you are just sensing the hiddenness of God. If that's you this morning, would you stand with me? I would like to pray for us as a group. Father, you see those of us who are standing. And Father, you even see those who this morning do not have the energy to even stand because they are in such a bitter moment. But Father, this morning, whether we're standing or whether we're sitting, we lift our hands, our heart, our eyes to you. And we say, Jesus, in the midst of our prelude, we are choosing to raise a hallelujah. Not because we feel like it. Not because our circumstances and situations lend themselves to it. But by faith, we raise our hallelujah this morning. Father, some of us are in bitter baths. Moments of agitation, moments of having abrasive circumstances and situations. But Father, we raise our hallelujah in spite of these things. We repent to you and you alone, Lord God. We humble ourselves beneath your mighty hand. And Father, we submit ourselves to you and to the authorities that you've placed over us. Father, we are asking you, to put within us a hunger to seek you, a hunger to look for you in every circumstance and in every situation because we believe that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. So, Father, we set our eyes, we set our affection on you. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.